You're listening to the Faith Made Welcome podcast, a progressive podcast of faith where we look at Christianity from a progressive Baptist tradition. This podcast is brought to you by Commonwealth Baptist Church in Alexandria, Virginia. So whoever you are, wherever you are, or whatever you think about faith, you're welcome here. Please let us know what you think about our podcast by subscribing to it or by sharing it with someone who may be looking for a podcast like this. And we would love to hear your feedback. So please leave us a comment or question on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Um, Welcome to the Faith Made Welcome podcast. Uh, You're listening to this. This is episode number five. This is episode five of Faith Made Welcome. If you listened to episodes one through four, you know that that was uh, what we were calling the Activist Preacher series in light of all the racial tension and unrest that we have and the reckoning that is going on in our country right now. Um, It was was thought that we would have uh, a benefit to serve by bringing in some some preachers who could speak to to this reckoning that we that were that we're going through. So we hope you enjoyed that. And if you haven't listened to those yet, absolutely go back and, and check out episodes one through four. Moving forward from there, though, um, Marty and Robin Anderson thought it would be good to have a series on the intersection of faith and science. The intersection of faith and science, and of course. As uh, as we know, anybody who's in the faith communities, anybody who's in the science community knows there is a sort of an, it almost seems like an innate tension between faith and science and how they how they relate to each other. Really wanted to take some time and pick that apart and try to understand why that is and try to get uh, to the bottom of how not just understanding the the tension, but what uh, it looks like to uh to unite the two understanding the disagreement and why there is one and understanding the the friction and why there is one but also you know if you're coming at this from a scientist point of view how do you start um how do you start uh with an open open mind and open thought communicating with with the faith community and if you're part of a faith community and you're not quite sure how to reconcile uh, scientific work and scientific thinking and scientific understanding into your into your faith view. Um, how do you do that? How do you do that? So um, we tried to open this up and make it as broad as possible to uh, wherever you're starting from, where anyone is starting from, and the consideration of of a point of view that uh, is is one that brings a little bit of friction with it. There might be something something for you, something for you in it. So. Uh, for this, uh, Marty and Robin invited Dr. Graham Walker, Jr., uh, the professor of theology at Mercer University in Georgia. And Dr. Walker was actually a, a seminary professor of both uh, Robin and Marty when they were in seminary school. And uh, I was invited to uh, participate in this as well. I'm Dr. Paul Fitzgerald. You may know me. I was on episode four a little bit. Uh, and, uh, Sherry Spiegel and I have a different podcast, which you may or may not know about. So I make uh, occasional appearances with, with Commonwealth Baptist Church stuff. And, um, I was invited in to be uh, the voice of a professional scientist as I have, you know, some scientific credentials. I teach a biology class. Um, my, my PhD is in geology with a focus on paleontology and paleobiology. So. Um, and this is not for Dr. Walker and I to have an argument with each other. This is for us to have a conversation to explore these ways that we can come together um, and how understanding can can sort of happen from different points of view. And uh, why am I actually doing this little intro here? Well, the real reason is this: uh, we went to this we we went into this recording hoping to record um, a couple episodes. We we had it in mind that we were going to record two. Uh, we had a wonderful and extraordinary conversation uh, with Dr. Walker that went on for quite a while, and it's really dense, and there's a lot in here. So we're actually going to split this into into three. So episodes five, six, and seven are going to be um, all parts uh, of this conversation we were having with Dr. Walker. So um, we just want to give you a little bit of a heads up on that. 
that uh, episode five is going to be the first part of it, and episode six is going to be the second, and episode seven is going to be um, the third, the third part of it. Now, what's really fun is that episode eight is its own little special special treat for us, and and hopefully you enjoy that as well. After we finished this wonderful conversation with Doctor Walker, I should I should say Graham. He prefers to be called Graham, or at least that's what he told us. Uh, we were sitting around the table eating lunch um, after this amazing conversation, and our heads were still sort of spinning with what we just uh, experienced and uh, the conversation we just had. And we just sort of kept talking about it. We kept unpacking it. And uh, we quickly realized that there's some real uh, nuggets that folks might find interesting in the conversation we were having over lunch. So uh, we said, hang on, everybody, if we're going to actually have a conversation about this uh, let's let's get this on. Let's get this on the SD card. So uh, we threw a mic up uh, and had another little forty-five minute light conversation about the conversation that we just had, with a little bit more unpacking and introspection as uh, the conversation we had with Doctor Walker just sort of kept unfolding and kept unpacking within us. So that's going to be episode eight. So. Um, each one's about 40, 45 minutes long, uh, and I really hope you enjoy them. I just want to give you a little bit of a heads up on what all this is about with these next few episodes, and uh, we really hope you enjoy it. So uh, this is it for me. You'll hear me on the podcast, but uh, for most of it's uh, Dr. Walker and uh, Reverends, Marty and Robin Anderson and Dr. Sherry Spiegel. So I hope you enjoy it. Have a great day, everybody. Love you. Welcome to the fifth episode of Faith Made Welcome. Um, and this episode is special because we are kicking off our second series. Um, and who do we have in the room today for this second series? I am Robin Anderson. I am one of the pastors of Commonwealth Baptist Church here in Alexandria, Virginia. And I'm Marty Anderson, the other pastor at Commonwealth Baptist Church. I am Paul Fitzgerald. Um, I was uh, invited to be on this as I am a uh, resident scientist, I guess. Uh, I teach biology and occasionally geology uh, at Northern Virginia Community College. I have a PhD in paleontology, paleobiology from the University of California, Davis, and a master's degree in evolutionary biology. Bragger. Sorry. <laughs> People wanted to I was like, why is this guy on this thing? You know, it's like, ah. Fair. Went to college a little, so. And I'm Graham Walker. I teach theology and philosophy at the McAfee School of Theology, Mercer University in Atlanta. Woohoo! Yeah, you do. <laughs> and I've uh, I've been working with the interface between science and theology for a long time. Um, had a few grants, and I've worked with the dialogue on science, ethics, and religion through the um, AAAS. Um, and uh, that's been uh, a wonderful experience coming to terms with two different camps and how we understand the world and look for a place where we can make bridges and dialogue together. Right. And I'm Sherry Spiegel, and I'm probably not going to have much to say today. <laughs> um, so I'm a deacon at this church, and I'm a PhD in English, uh, which is one of the reasons why, as we're launching into this faith series uh, that's going to be about the intersection of faith and science, I feel like it's time for the PhD in English to be a little quiet and listen to some other folks in the room. Uh, but I'm still miked because of peer pressure. Um, so to get us going, um, Marty and Robin have known our guest, Graham Walker, for a little while now. Y'all want to tell us how you know him? Well, we started um, McAfee School of Theology the same year that Graham started teaching theology at McAfee School of Theology. So we kind of jumped into that seminary journey together. Um, and we went to seminary right after we got married, and we've been married yes. 21 years. So we have known Graham for a long time. So he was our theology, and at that time you were also teaching ethics. So you are a theology and ethics professor. And um, he was in special enough in 
to Marty and me that we asked him to participate in an ordination service when we got mm -hmm. ordained. So we have a good bit of a history with Graham. I'm going to try really hard Thanks. to not say <laughs> Dr. Walker. <laughs> yeah, they are pausing like all former students do before they say Dr. Walker. I mean, he has a first name, Graham. Um, we know this well. So cool. So we are starting off with just an easy question. Uh, yeah, faith and science, can they be friends, yet right? A, like yet that's another softball. Yeah, yet yeah. Yet another softball. Yeah, so, well, can yeah. they be friends? Why are we asking this Yeah, question? why can't they be friends? So, yeah. a good bit of the, like, the studies that are coming out, that have been coming out for years about why people are leaving the church in droves, um, science is always one of the factors that come up, that one of the things that drives people away from church is the belief that churches or people in churches are anti-science. Mm -hmm. And people feel like they have to choose, right? That they can either believe in science or they can have a faith life that believes in some sort of God, but they can't have both, mm -hmm. which is ridiculous. <laughs> And Graham should tell us why. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let me play around with it just a little bit. And, and you all jump in, and especially even the English professor. I think that's a wonderful um, way to look at uh, the world is uh, in terms of narrative structure. Mm -hmm. and, nar mm -hmm. and narrative structure is exactly what, uh, what science takes a look at. Whether you're a cosmologist mm -hmm. and you're looking at once upon a time, how did we get here? Or you're looking at a sense of ending, as uh, as your narrative folks will tell you. Then you're looking at, as the physicists would say, where are we going? Is this world an open system? Is it a closed system? Is it cooling down? Is it heating up? What will the end look like? So that's a pretty important factor that involves narratives and how we come to our understanding of what truth is, is, is by making that narrative structure. So I'm kind of bringing in the English uh, literature side of things pretty pretty quickly here because that's maybe the biggest place of conflict that you have between science mm. and religion <laughs> is how do you understand the narratives? And we know this about the human species. The evolutionary biologists um, have, have done a pretty good job of helping us see an evolutionary psychology too. And that, that has led us to say, it's really important for a human being to understand who they are by the stories they tell. Um, if, uh, you know, I've, I've <laughs> I had a wonderful uh, Boston Terrier and, and, and the little guy, he, he was great. Um, he just liked to make eye contact, get in my face, give me stare time. And then just, uh, I, it's like the, the dog every nine-year-old boy wanted and I didn't get one until I was 50. So it was <laughs> it's like a dream come true to have this little, and he had such he had a white face. So we called him Kabuki <laughs> and, uh, and he just, he just, he, he was fantastic. But one thing I, I observed about this animal is that as per, much personality as he had, he never asked the questions, um, who am I and where am I going and why am I here? Hmm. Quite, he never came up with the questions of origin, purpose, and destiny. Uh, those are those are key to what it means to be human. Now, theologians and philosophers have come to where we talk about that as meaning we are exocentric. We find our identity outside of ourselves mm -hmm. in social constructs. We don't find our identity internally, biologically given to us. So if you're a beehive, every piece of that beehive operates in sync in a given pattern that was passed on biologically from generation to generation. But humans are quite different. They come with a, with a range of possibility, but then their flexibility and how they live is wide open. So narratives make all the difference in the world, how you understand. Now, does that kind of click for you? I mean, uh, scientists and, and literature people in the room and religious <laughs> folks in the room. This ought to, this ought to be clicking with yeah, you. Yeah. Because, yeah. because if you're talking about 
the actions of repeated that create group identity as a, as a minister, then this is exactly what we're talking about. It has to be done for humans. We crave the ability to remind ourselves who we are and why we're here. It operates on three things, origin, purpose, and destiny. Where do I come from? Origin, destiny, where am I going? And, and, and um, how purpose, how do I live while I'm here? So those are key kinds of questions that emerge out of both our, our biology, our presuppositions, but also out of our ability to tell stories. Elie Wiesel said it a long time ago. I studied with Elie Wiesel, and, uh, and, and I love the way he says, God invented human beings because God loves stories. Mm -hmm. We tell stories. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, so I'm going to throw it back at you all for a minute, bounce it around the room, and, and then let me keep going. Uh, I mean, just the, the way that a scientist would approach the questions of where where do I come from? Where am I going? And, and what am I doing here? And what is what is the destiny? Comes from observable, the fossil record. It comes from the DNA. It comes from uh, what are the properties of this species and what are the properties of the individuals and how long is it persisting through time, filling its biological role in the ecosystem in, in which it does. Um, that question, the, the, first, the first one, where do I come from, you know, using those tools ob obviously is poked at by anthropologists and archaeologists all, all the time um, as best it sort of can be done throughout the arc of human history from mm -hmm. emergence uh, as evidenced by the fossil record uh, and narratives through cultures um, all the time. It's what is the role in the, in, the, in the ecosystem where I think a lot of times humans are placed sort of in a superposition where we don't oftentimes even think of ourselves as being part of an ecosystem. We think of ourselves being in an ecosystem that is around us, but, but not necessarily a part of it, possibly because we make tools, possibly because we create our own microenvironment in our homes. Uh, we're not as subject, although this is changing, to the whims of weather uh, and climate as much because we have air conditioning and heating and things like that. Um, so why why... You know, it's just hard to find examples where people really do, from a scientific point of view, talk, try to even talk about humans and human culture in the same way that we try to address other plants and animals and fungi and all this other sort of stuff in the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. um, and that might be part of the disconnect. I mean, when it, when it, when why is why are the bees here? You say, well, they pollinate flowers and uh, they you know, satisfy these critical pollination roles and they have, you know, other things rely on them. They rely on other things and there's integrated part of this ecosystem. That question is not even addressed from the point of view of humans uh -huh. uh, in that sort of way, you know, just by asking why, why is the bird here? It's like, or why are bats here? Well, they eat mosquitoes and they pollinate some stuff and they come out at night and they get rid of a lot of pests. Uh, why are humans here? It's like, well, I mean, the, the question itself predisposes an existential philosophy towards coming up with yes. a, a purpose that is not biological, but it is higher and spiritual in some sort of way. Uh, and, and that's curious to me. And I, I think that, that one of the places maybe where the disconnect comes from is the way that we approach particular narratives, particularly the Bible, if we're talking from a Christian standpoint, right? That, that Christians are taught to see the Bible really as a textbook. Um, and so we're not asking those questions that you just asked. We're not seeing the Bible as a book that is a collection of stories and poetry written over a vast period of time by different people. And that those are the questions those people were asking, right? They weren't necessarily writing a textbook. They were asking those same questions. Where did we come from? What is our destiny? What is our purpose? And so we're, we're, we're seeing story asking these existential questions as textbook giving us facts and data yes yeah i always um i always came from the point of creation bible of how to get my identity right and those stories 
somewhere in my growing ups also became like facts for me. So, and then, but I know that God created us. That's what I grew up believing. But when we worked at, uh, in Baltimore with the Johns Hopkins students, all those medical students would come by the church and tell me how complicated the human body is and how complex it is. And I know that it's like more than just the breath of God that was in me, like all these um, vessels and ligaments and how they go together. It was just fascinating. Um, and I know that um, my body, when I exercise, makes me more healthy, but it also clears my mind and thoughts to a different, broader, bigger view of purpose. So I think it's connected somewhere in there, like mm. my body and my mind and my spirit all just kind of connects together. And, and I don't know, I think that's maybe a commonplace, but Graham, so, you could... Well, it sounds like what you're saying is they're all parts of the same story. Yes. But different angles, right? Yes. But I think we separate them yeah. to where, you know, we have these ideas of who God is, but we're here and we're we're made up by this matter and, you know, DNA and all the stuff that Paul was just talking about and explaining. And we separate those like those are two. That's a story. And this is what we are. Does that make sense? So, yeah. So, um you all are beginning to to see kind of for what I why I see this fascinating interface between theology and science and faith and and how it kind of works together because I think you're 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 landing on a point of interest to me that if you actually believe in a creator god then you're actually looking at the the very same creation and you are coming from different perspectives and lenses and Paul, I think your observation is, yeah, but I never asked the why questions in science. I asked the how questions. Mm -hmm. How did it came about? Right. Correct. And I think yeah. that's that's a legitimate thing. And yet we also hear people like Stephen Hawking and others say, oh, but if I knew the beginning, if I could get back to T equals zero and know what happens just before the beginning, I would have all the knowledge. Mm -hmm. You see. And you hear Edward O. Wilson, the famous biologist, saying, consilience is possible. One day we're going to bring these fields of knowledge together and, and we're really going to have something. Mm -hmm. So you, you hear that and you go, yes. And there is a divergence. There's no doubt there's a divergence in path. Ian Barber is the famous physicist and theologian, um, PhD in physics, PhD in theology, Here's a guy who speaks both languages fluently, and he made the he made the observation that when you're looking with um, models of uh, of theology and faith, that you're talking about things that are, are explanatory. You're looking at how to give people identity making statements and the way to live because of the way we're constructed. And thank goodness the. Uh, the evolutionary psychologists have come to realize the importance of just that piece. Mm -hmm. um, Dave Jen and others have kind of really made a clear uh, delineation, the fact that we link stories and history and narrative together along with who we are as persons. And even Edward O. Wilson in his book on human nature points to some of the same thing. We have biological givens, a pretty good strand that we can say as a base but then we have to kind of create the world in which we live in. So I'm looking right now in the room that you're in, I see A square, B square equals C square everywhere in the room. There is nothing that you all are around in or not encapsulated by that doesn't have a human designed A square, mm -hmm. B square mm -hmm. equals C square. Mm -hmm. You have constructed even a physical world that you live in. You're not, you're not, you can't function. This whole event that we're doing can't function without the sciences that are used to construct the worlds that we live in. So the how is important because it changes the way and the quality of the worlds that we live in for the good or for the evil. Now, when those two were in my theology class, I, 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 I told them about your boxing nun and boxing devil that you could bring to class. 
<laughs> well, there you go. I always, I always show the movie and I still do contact mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it is, it's an extremely good uh, movie to kind of Carl Sagan's book yeah, contact. Right. right. Um, it's an extremely good movie to kind of look at the relationship between science and faith. And basically there are four and Ian Barber kind of points that out. There's science and faith in conflict with each other, science and faith in um, independent of each other. And then there's science and faith in dialogue with each other and science and faith integrated with each other. And so there's a different narrative in all four of those relationships. So the conflict narrative is built on the idea that humanity sees itself as subjecting the world under its foot, and therefore the scientists are, are representative of those who provide the alternative narrative of, oh, but this is what the world is about. And so it has a voice in the system. So you have a conflict going there. Then there's the independence narrative and that is that when scientists speak they're talking about something completely different from from faith i once went to a conference on human becoming in chicago in the oh i guess the early 2000s and um, a a psychiatrist uh was there and he asked me what are you doing here you're a theologian this is a scientific conference and i said <laughs> yes it is and i said uh, and to what degree is your work um, impacted uh, by people who believe like me? He says, not at all. Most of us uh, do not believe at this conference in, in a higher being or God in any way, shape or form. And I said, yeah. To what, how much of your uh, research money comes from um, the public? Oh, 99% cool. of the money we get comes from the public. Huh. And I said, so if less than a percent of the people on the planet believe like you, but they believe in a theological way of understanding the world. And most of your research funding comes from those people. It seems that you need some way of interconnecting with a community that you just don't understand. And, <laughs> and, and that, that is really uh, seen in the movie Contact because it's like we talk past each other mm -hmm. and there's conflict there. And yet we so totally need each other. That's what's an amazing thing. Edward O. Wilson, uh, for those of you who don't know this guy, he was a famous entomologist. He's the one who discovered fire ants in mm -hmm. South Alabama. And then um, he also finished at Tuscaloosa, University of Alabama, before going on to Harvard and becoming the famous uh, sociobiologist that the field that uh, he, he, he created. Mm -hmm. um, but he's been, he's been a critic of religion for a long time. He grew up Southern Baptist in South Alabama, and he went home to his pastor on spring break and said, Pastor, um, I got some really cool stuff to tell you about this evolution stuff, about the creation that God made. And, Pastor said, no, you got to make a choice. It's either going to be the Bible or it's going to be Darwin, but uh -huh. it can't be both. And so he said, well, as a young man, I took Darwin because that was seemed to be the way that all of my future and my research was taking me. Huh. And, and the data does seem to bear out evolutionary history in time. Huh. Well, he wrote a book not too long ago in the mid 2000s titled Creation. And in that book, the second chapter of the book, he says, um, this is a letter to my Baptist, Southern Baptist pastor friend. He said, can't we become friends? Can't we learn to work it out? After a long career of not being able to speak to each other, it seems to me that I care about the future of the planet. I care about the future of what's gonna happen. And I know, but because of my studies, we are in danger. And he says, but you have the voice. You have the ability to speak the narrative that talks to the people to get the information out there. I can't do that. And so, and so he made that move. He made that shift to say, uh, we may be coming from different places, but we hold true the same thing that uh, in, in common, the love of the planet that God has created. Yeah. And yeah. if, if you have a, a conversation with somebody if i mean if you come from a scientific background or you have a base of scientific information at your disposal 
and you you try to have a some sort of consilience with with someone who is a person of faith or your friends or your family at a Thanksgiving dinner or something like that. I mean, because science or, you know, because we're not going to talk about religion and politics, right? Those are the things you don't talk about at family dinners. If <laughs> if the basis of the conversation starts with, I'm going to ask you to not believe the things that are in front of your eyes that you see around you, you're not going to get far. Yeah. You're not going to get far. And so both the, the bad rap that I've seen that most of them get, you know, that, that most people have with science and how it leads to religion and religion is how it relates to science is the scientist asks the uh the religious uh person to uh everything that is in this book um is one story there's others and here's data and there it is and what this religious you know person asked the scientist is don't believe the things that are in front of your eyes that you build your career on uh, and, uh, just use, use a, a faith-based approach that doesn't rely on that I- instead. And for, for that reason, the scientist often gets the bad rap, uh, rightly so, I would add, of having just like the worst PR in history. Um, they're really <laughs> lousy communicators. They're really lousy communicators. So you have one group, um, that is grounded in data that's a lousy communicator and then doesn't know how to talk to the public with another group who is fantastic at speaking to the public, um, who, who doesn't, who comes from a basis of information not as reliant on uh, information gathering from a pseudo objective point of view. Of course, they're going to be conflict. Of course, there's going to be conflict. You know, they, they go right at the heart of which other is, is, is the worst at. And you get defensiveness on both sides and then you're nowhere. I'm, you're nowhere. I'm curious about like, how did we get to a place, Graham, where, where pastors and theologians and people of faith said, don't believe what's in front of your eyes. Like where do, where, how did, how did we shift from, we've got two set, we're coming at something from two different angles. Let's kind of see where the connections are to, you cannot trust what's in front of your eyes. You should only trust what's in this one book. Right, 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 right. Well, okay, so you know the history, theological history here, and a little bit of that church history mm-hmm. stuff. So when you're looking at um, Ptolemaic um, ways of forming the earth, and you're looking at um, between 100 and, and 170, Ptolemy um, basically lays out a, a understanding of the wor- world as geocentric, which means round, globe, and the universe revolves around the earth. Um, that's already a big step from what you find in scriptures, uh-huh. which is a flat earth with a rotation held suspended. I mean, you can see that in uh, Psalms, uh, book of Psalms, um, chapter 93, verse one, there's a, the, the earth is flat and suspended right there in space. So you have that view. So Ptolemy view in one, let's say 170 is already a big shift, okay? That's a, that's a big shift. Now you've got some sort of globe. Why? Because he's operating like a scientist and he's trying to predict what's going on around him in an observable fact. He's looking out, he's seeing the moon come up. And if you look out right now, it's a great time to go out and look. Yeah. You can see this really neat constellation. You can see Jupiter out there. Mm-hmm. You can see Mars. And if you have really good eyes, okay, take out your binoculars. You can see <laughs> Neptune back there. And it's, it's just fascinating. I go on my walks at night and I look at that and I'm just, I'm just fascinated by that. And every 12 hours that um, the space station, International Space Station is going over your house. Um, I get out, I watch, I have a little uh, app. So I know when it's coming, it beeps me and I get myself outside and I holler, Mimi, get out here, get out here. You gotta see this. Yes, you gotta see this. The neighbors think I'm crazy. <laughs> But it's the most fascinating thing. It's just like this, it just streaks across the sky. And when the, they had the, um, the most recent capsule go and return, I saw it break off in the sky and return, start that return. I was just thrilled. Now this comes, you know, back when I was a kid, uh, before my parents became missionaries and moved to Singapore, uh, I was a kid that grew up in the space, uh, space mm-hmm. age. My, my uncle was the uh, mayor of Titusville, Florida, which is Cape Canaveral. And so I would go over and see the Gemini. I would see 
you know, Mer I never saw Mercury. I was a little too young for that, but, but the Gemini and the Apollo launches, I saw as many of those as I could. And it just fascinated me beyond imagination. But the science it takes to pull that off, the, um, the ability to actually see these things happen requires an enormous amount of, of um, respect for how this world operates. Now, Barber, getting back to him a second, he argues that for, like I said, for, for religious folks, we're doing explanatory things that talk about our identity. But, but the scientist is doing exploratory things. No, no thing that a scientist looks at stays the same for very long. So as soon as they build a model of the world, right, they tear it down and look for a better mm -hmm. one. Their whole method is driven on doubt. Yeah, prove me wrong. Here's my idea. Here's my hypothesis. Then my whole goal is to prove me wrong. If I can't prove it wrong, then there's a possibility that it might be right. But not for sure. I'm looking at a correspondence. Truth for a scientist is how your view of the world, how your formula corresponds to what you see, touch, taste, feel is right there. Now, why does a scientist do that? Because a scientist knows that we create narratives in our head and we become comfortable with those. And those are, um, those are hard to escape because once we feel comfortable in a worldview, we want to stay there. Now, if we did that, we would be, we would be lost to a whole lot of the way we're living right now. Everything in that room that you're in right now is affected one way, shape, form or other by scientific discovery. And the brilliance of science is that we pass on this knowledge from generation to generation. So the next generation doesn't have to relearn. They can say, ah, our cultural scientific warehouse of knowledge is now being passed on. So those who do the history of science are extremely important people because they carry the knowledge that the laboratory work is doing now. They'll carry that from next generation to the next generation to the next generation because you never know when we're going to lose track of that. Um, in the 1980s, 1984, there's the Human Interference Project. I find that just a fascinating story. Paul, do you know about that? I don't. No, I don't. Project? No, I don't. Okay, so a group of anthropologists, scientists, linguists were gathered together to figure out how in the world are we going to pass on knowledge to future generations of the uranium, spent uranium that we have used in our nuclear sites, mm. how, and we bury it. How do you put out warnings to future generations? When no human language really can stretch more than about 3,000 years, right. then how do you communicate that? Well, it has to be figured out in such a way that storytellers will pass this along. Mm. And as they structured it, they began to think, you know, the best way to do that is really through creating religious types of communities that are able to pass that information on from generation to generation to generation. Otherwise, you know how human beings are. We find something in the past, archaeologically speaking, you're a paleontologist. <laughs> <laughs> So you like to dig up stuff. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. There's some stuff that if we dig up, we will destroy the planet. Right. And so that's the point. So how in the world do you tell the stories into the future that give warnings from the, from the past to the future? Don't dig this up. Right. So, so it's a really fascinating yeah. thing. The science is there and it can do such wonderful things, but it also has a capacity to do such very, very dangerous things. Is, is part of it, uh, the, the tension of that related to, um, when I say the tension of that, um, just the, the narrative aspect between, I mean, the wave arms, broadly religious perspectives and scientific ones. Um, what, when you were speaking, what I was thinking of, every ancient culture has an origin story that's a narrative about where they came from yeah. you know uh whether it's native american tribes whether it's south american tribes whether it is you know hunter-gatherer societies and 
in you know in Asia, right? There's all a, a narrative story from whence they came, yes. and that story, which gets passed on from generation to generation to generation, which predates anyone's understanding of where that story actually comes from, or or what the origin of it is, predates uh, radioactive dating, predates the field of paleontology, predates you know the 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 rock hammer as a tool on which to uncover, you know, it predates laws of superposition and geologic age and, and how to come up with the concept of geologic time to come in as a scientist and say, this is where I think we come from. And these are, uh, this is the data that suggests that it's, it's not an equal argument where you're both starting from a place at the same time, right? You're, you're, you're challenging a cultural identity. By doing that, and so doing, you're you're threatening the very identity of what those cultural peoples actually represent by saying that, um, and that is something that might not be appreciated from the scientist's point of view. It may it may be grasped onto a little more tightly from the from the religious point of view, and I would say the same for Christianity. You know, you know the biblical origin stories of of seven days, a seven day creation, as it's sort of written in in. I shouldn't say sort of. Uh, <laughs> I'm hedging because I'm not the religious person in the room. Well, I'm not the religious professional in the room, I should say. Um, I think I'm the only non-religious professional in the room, actually. Um, uh, is is contrary to what the data suggests. And, you know, so even something that's as relatively recent by only, you know, you know, six, seven, eight, whatever thousand years, the notion of uh, Judeo-Christianity, um, that's still a significant amount of time to have a cultural narrative where one comes before science swoops in and tells you that it's something else. To build off of that, um, I, I took a note that a little while ago, um, Graham said that science is rooted in doubt, right? You're asking the mm -hmm. questions, what if this is wrong? And that, to me, seems to connect with what you're saying, Paul. If you've got science that's rooted in doubt, and then Christians in particular say that doubt is bad, and a lot of Christians actually say that doubt is the opposite of faith, so then that might be why so many Christians have such a hard time even asking those questions, right? Because it might make me doubt. And if it makes me doubt, then that means I don't have faith. And I'm also thinking about how, like, I don't think Judaism has this problem because I think a Jewish approach to story is to interrogate it, is to ask questions about it, is to debate it. But Christians, particularly in America, I guess, don't necessarily give ourselves that freedom because if we ask questions, we might find that the answers aren't so clear. And if the cancer answers aren't so clear, then we doubt in what happens to faith. Well, I think it, it relates to how we treat story. Like, do we treat story as the starting place for the conversation mm -hmm. or the ending point for the conversation? And I think, like science tends to treat it as the starting place as we here's the story we know so far what do we want to add if we get too held up in <clears throat> honor the story we've been telling because we've been telling that story as opposed to let's hear this story and then figure out how we create how we build on that story like it's it's how you treat the story yeah. right and how many times do christians shut down debate or argument by saying but the bible says and that's it, right? So that's that's making the story yeah, the, the end, not is, the jumping which off Which is point. a sign, which is a sign of how strong your faith actually is. Mm -hmm. To right. actually mm -hmm. be confronted with the data and an alternative story of, of human origin and to say, you know what? It's not that, it's this. And even though it goes against what the evidence suggests, I'm going to hang on to that. That's a testament of how strong your faith is. Mm -hmm. um, and it goes back to what Dr. Graham was saying <laughs> um, about how scientists try to push the story, prove me wrong, and push the story to something else, to involve, to make the story go somewhere else. Whereas our faith, we are kind of confined by the Bible. Mm -hmm. And we have this story to tell. And we, we, we base our whole faith journey on this one story that we think will never change. 
and we don't evolve like because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Day. Right. And so nothing can change. The book is and closed. Jesus, right. Yeah. yeah. The book is closed. Ah, yeah. Right. That's a beautiful point of entry. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And behold, this is from the book of Revelation. I make all things new. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, so you hear the you hear the internal paradox that is there. And that's a, that's a key point for narratives and stories and how they operate. They have wiggle room, and the wiggle room is designed to keep you alert to just that. So you have to ask yourself, why is a scientist becoming anti-religious uh, story? Why is a, a person of faith becoming anti-scientific investigation? What's pushing them to deny a basic paradox at the core of who we are? And Yes, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and behold, I make all things new. Yes, both, both of those scriptures are found in the Bible. Both of those speak to who we are. Mm -hmm. So now you got to think, huh, is God on the side of newness? Is God on mm -hmm. the side of, of sustained identity? What's going on here? Is the kingdom of God arrived already, or do we just see it and we wish for it on the horizon of the future? So you see there's this already and not yet um stability makes things new um humanity uh sinful yet made in the image of god mm -hmm. you see the you see god is transcendent god is imminent to be found everywhere but to be found not to be able to be explained and have no name that you can use for god so you see the paradoxes that are core at these stories are really important. And when you get into a science versus um, religious debate, what you're doing is you're getting into, I don't accept the paradox here. I'm making firm boundaries that exclude paradox. Now, where does that come from? I think there's another place to look. Peter Berger is the famous sociologist of a religion who said, we don't have a secularization problem in this country. We have a pluralization issue in this country. And when you have multiple voices telling multiple narratives, that changes the way you behave. And you behave in such a way that you either uh, deny altogether what somebody else is saying and you move into kind of a fundamentalist, I don't want to hear it, you can't tell me anything. Or you become a person who says, everything is there, it doesn't matter. And you become a relativist. And he said, neither one of those are working. You have to use doubt. He borrows it from science, from David Hume and others. And he says, doubt is a good thing, provided that you can create a space between communities where they can talk and find agreement. That's where you'll actually find a common ground. Okay, I doubt you, but I also have to doubt some of my presuppositions mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. And you have to be willing to doubt yourself and also some of the presuppositions that you have. So the breaking together of those common fields can take place. Ian Barber is a good example, physicist and theologian. Uh, Polkinghorne, John Polkinghorne, a good example, physicist and, and a believer. Um, Francis Collins, the head of, of, our, um, of our human uh, genome project. He is a believer, and yet he was able to use what is called methodological materialism. Whoa, listen to this. There's a difference. <laughs> listen to this carefully. There's a big difference between methodological materialism and philosophical materialism. A methodological materialist can be a believer, but when they go into the laboratory, put on their white coat, put on their goggles, put on their mask, and they go with the intent of prove me wrong. I have to have a vaccine for COVID-19 and it's got to be the absolute best. I can't say, don't worry, God will come up with it. <laughs> no, I am now a methodological materialist. God has provided a way, I've got to go discover it. Mm. And I cannot say God will just deal with it. That's a God of the gaps kind of mm -hmm. thing. 
where you ask God to answer the questions that you don't know about anymore. That's the where does God where does God live right uh, and right. what science has done is they keep marginalizing him to the gaps in our own understanding. So the, the house the house where God lives becomes smaller and smaller because he only exists in those unexplainable gaps of grand unification theory and physics uh, and in when did humans become humans and you know these kind of little unknown sort of sort uh -huh. of questions. Yes. Yeah, perfect, Paul. That's exactly it. So. So if you want to avoid moving God slowly out of the face of modern humanity, then you have to be able to use methodological materialism that says, okay, I'm going to go research the world that God has created, and I'm going to ask the questions that are there about this world. I just can't assume, throw my hands up and say, oh, don't worry, let's all go back to school, things will be just fine, and... Um, if we just pray hard enough, or if we just think hard enough that God will take care of it, uh, that does not that does not work at all. But that's not to say that that scientist like Marty, like you mentioned, is just overwhelmed with the complexity and the kind of the beauty and the synergy and the amazing awe that comes from the world in which they find themselves investigating that takes them to the point of asking the question, not that can't say, declaratively God is, but is God, you know, it, it, it's a more humble approach. Yeah. It's a way to recognize that, wow, this is just a fascinating drama back to our literature folk. This is a, this is the, an enormous, incredible drama that we're part of that we are mending the world. And Robin, that's Tekon Olam. So mm -hmm. to mend the world becomes a meeting point where science and faith work together. Right back to Edward O. Wilson. Can we mend this world? Can we fix this world? It's going to take both the scientists who who endeavor to find out how it works, and it's going to take those who tell the story to motivate, to operate, and to get us to where we can use the scientists effectively. This podcast is produced by Sherry Spiegel, Paul Fitzgerald, and This Most Unbelievable Life. For more information, please check us out at www.thismostunbelievablelife.com.